Today, what we want to look at is climate. And so I'm looking forward to, in a, in a few minutes' time, um, interviewing Steve Parsons and Carrie Philpot, and we're going to talk about uh, the fourth theme of this series, Voices Rise Up, and it's to do with climate. But before we do that, I just want to let you know about someone in our community who we celebrate what she does, and she's been doing it for a long time. Firstly, it began as an endeavor to help young women uh, maintain their place in their education, in their schooling, in, in developing countries uh, with for Days for Girls. Um, but uh, Michelle has developed that and grown that into a business right now. It's in Baronia. And check out this story. It's a great story for us to celebrate uh, what Michelle's been doing, Michelle Gates, in our local area. Hi, I'm Michelle. I'm part of New Community and I'm really passionate about the environment. I run a business here in outer eastern Melbourne in Baronia called Here and There Makers. Uh, I started this business about three years ago as a social enterprise. I became involved in a not-for-profit organisation called Days for Girls, which make sanitary hygiene kits for women overseas, so basically washable pads uh, so that girls can stay in school and work and have opportunities uh, all the days of the month um, and not be isolated and um, have struggles during their periods. And I wanted to be able to support the charity work that I was doing financially by providing a space that we could use um, more of the time. We used to just do a monthly meeting and we wanted to be able to meet every week, multiple times a week and have more people involved and therefore be able to help more women. So about three years ago, we rented a space here in Baronia and I started here in their makers. And we sell all things basically that replace single-use plastics and are environmentally friendly. We have a philosophy that anything that we sell that is consumable needs to be refillable. As a consumer in a Western culture, when I'm purchasing something as much as I can while being still pragmatic, I try and think about one of the questions I ask myself is what is going to be the end life of this product that I'm buying and using? When I'm finished with it, what will happen to it? Will it be able to be reused or recycled? Will it be able to be composted? Is it biodegradable? Um, is it using sustainable resources or resources sustainably um, that are sustainably sourced and ethically sourced or um is it ripping people off? Uh, so we also sell fair trade products, so um, things like that. So those are issues that are really close to my heart and I'm really passionate about. Uh, so for me, as a Christian, as a Jesus follower, I really believe that God is the creator of the earth um, and that he asked us to look after it. At the moment, human beings are really not doing that very well. Uh, and that really worries me for the future for future generations um, I'm also really concerned about the waste that we're creating and the pollution that we're creating and with the way that we just consume and consume and consume I think that social justice issues and poverty are really interlinked with uh, environmental issues and so I see that as a good fit what I'm doing with Days for Girls in terms of social justice for women um, and therefore whole communities because women are an integral part of those communities and what I'm doing with the um, supporting the environment as um, really important. Part of what we do is, is really community focused so we have the Days for Girls groups here and we're open to other community um, craft-based charities using our space we rent it out for workshops 
Uh, we're a recycling hub. We partner um, with TerraCycle, which is a comp uh, an organisation that partners with companies to recycle products that are really difficult to recycle through your um, normal council recycling. Uh, so people can come in and bring in their bread tags or their old toothbrushes and toothpaste tubes or their pens and textures and things like that. Um, and so we try and help support the community in ways like that as well. Yeah, that's my little story. So I hope maybe you'll think about two ways that you might be able to look at the lifestyle and the things that you consume through your lifestyle and look at ways you can reduce waste and reduce your impact and support social enterprises that are fair trade and look after people and, and the planet properly. Thanks. That is a great story here and there, makers.com. Check that out or go to the shop and just become familiar with that space. Well done, Michelle Gates. You keep on keeping on. Um, that's a really great story for us to celebrate together. So well done. Well, I have two guests who are with me this morning. They're part of our community. Um, this is uh, Carrie Philpot and Steve Parsons. And I just want to ask you guys, so welcome today. Glad to have you here with us. Um, Carrie, just tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do with yourself during the week? And how long have you been connected to New Community for? Yeah, um, I'm a social worker, so I work for Uniting. And uh, in that role, I'm supporting families during the week. And my own family, uh, Nick and, and two kids, Josh and Heidi, we are here. we've been here for about two years with New Community. So... And yeah. you have just moved into the area. That's right. Drive past your house every time I come to uh, Maroondah Federation Estate, so well done. Thank you. Um, welcome to the area. Uh, Stephen, glad to have you with us. Tell us what you do with yourself during the week and uh, how long you've been connected to your community for. Uh, yes, I'm a hydrogeologist. I love that. Rocks, rocks. under the ground and water. Yes. And water. Um, tell you more about it later. But um, you know, we've been here about three years, so relative newbies. Yeah. Very good. A hydrogeologist. I'm looking forward to hearing more about that. Um, we're talking about uh, just a small topic today. It's called climate change. And uh, even this week uh, in our uh, political circles, there was a conversation happening in the Labor Party about climate matters. In fact, it's probably the theme that's the, the most sort of known or the most uh, sort of the front and centre, I think, of, of our generation, particularly in the last sort of 10 years. So what we thought we'd do is just by seeding and get us thinking about climate and climate change right now, we'd go to one of the voices uh, that's probably the most well-known, uh, respected person. I'd like to say that I interviewed him myself this week, but I didn't. But we got permission from the BBC to have a short listen to uh, just a, a great little snippet from Sir David Attenborough. Have a listen to this right now. Our planet does matter and they're very sobering thoughts. So Carrie, would you tell us, um, in your terms, what's the great injustice here? Mm. Well, I mean, it's a, a really um, confronting video that is in it of um, David Attenborough's to talk about the impacts of, of climate change. And we know that it's real, that it's happening, and that we have a very small window of opportunity, less than 10 years now, to turn this around and, and reduce um, the most extreme impacts of, of climate change on the world. And I, I guess for me, um, as a Christian, um, the, the, injust the great injustice is that those who are going to be and who are already most severely impacted by climate change um, are the poor and are those who 
are least responsible for getting us into this um, mess in, in the first place. And of course, the other group uh, who will be hardest hit by climate impacts are the future generations, our children, our grandchildren. They will be the ones that will suffer greatest from this, um, this issue. Good. I, I refer to it in my own mind as the downstream effect. Those who are downstream, the, the, the most vulnerable, and the future generations to come. Thanks, Carrie. Stephen, in your mind, what is the great injustice here? I, I think, think about the topics we've looked at in this series so far, aid matters, um, which is really to do with poverty. So the UN estimates 100 million people will... Sorry, a, a billion people will be put into poverty by... 2050 if we don't address more people who aren't now. So it's in intricately linked to poverty. Um, we looked at Indigenous matters and already um, Indigenous populations are already on the margins in a lot of countries socioeconomically, so they're more vulnerable to climate change. Um, in the Torres Strait, if you want to take Australia, for example, they're already seeing increased erosion of their lands. Some In 30 years' time, some of the, the low-lying islands could be underwater. So there's loss of culture and identity and everything already um, looked at inequality. So climate change will exacerbate inequality. Um, um, could go on with refugees, the number of climate refugees it could be in the future. So I think there's so many t forms of social justice are going to be exacerbated. So it's a threat. It's a threat multiplier. And that's, that's why I think it's such an important thing. It's not just one issue. It touches on on so many issues. That's good. I like that phrase you use. It's a threat multiplier. Mm. Um, that's what we're seeing with this. So, uh, Stephen, tell me, uh, you're not a climate scientist. You're, no. you're no. a hydrogeologist, so there's, yeah. some, there's scientists in there. But why yeah. is this... So that, that's good. Um, why is this personal to you? Yeah. Well, lots of reasons. But I'll, just, one of, I'll tell a little story. One of my strongest childhood memories of, of holidays... You remember the holidays a lot. I think I was 12 or 13 and we drove up to... Um, had a conference, Mum and Dad were in camping on the Great Barrier, Great Barrier Reef at Ely Beach and we went out on a boat. I'd never been snorkelling before, um, 20, 30 k's offshore, um, jump in the water, struggle with the mask and the fins and you tried it and eventually got it sorted out and then it was just like this magical world, world. just beneath the ocean. Like It was like... As a kid, it's like, wow, there's this whole other realm down underneath the world, underneath the surface. So that just blew me away. And a couple of months ago, watching um, Fight for Planet A with Craig Rucastle, and yes. he did a segment in there on the Great Barrier Reef. And I hadn't been back since then, but to, and so to see the reef, and we saw a bit of a snippet of a reef just before, just the coral bleaching, the fish, you know, largely gone and and large parts of the Great Barrier Reef now, like 30 years later from when I was there, are severely bleached, severely depleted. And Craig was interviewing a guy, Charlie Veron, who'd worked there since he was in his 20s and he's in his 70s now and to see his depression about the state of it and a lot of that's climate related due, um, due to the bleaching events that are causing it. Um, that, yeah, that really hit me and, and so I just think it's sad that in such a short time one of the greatest treasures on, on the earth, mm. you can see it from space, mm. is you know, a shadow of what it was. So that's, yeah. Um, but, sorry if I can go yeah. on. Just, so that's, that's a tragedy but, and 
um, but if we relate it to, to people as well, six, um, sorry, about 16 years ago, Shalinda and I lived in Indonesia for six months, and while we were there, we ate so much fish. I've never eaten that much. We we're in a remote, sort of rural part, and of the of the country, and they rely a lot of the world's population rely on on um, on fish for their protein. And so, if, when reefs go out of when they lose their productivity, their spawning grounds for for um, for fish, um, that has a big effect on the on the on the dynamics of the ocean. So, it's going to affect if if reefs lose a lot of their biodiversity, half a billion people could be um, their livelihoods or their food source affected. So, that, so there's, it's linked, you know, there's, there's a loss of beauty, there's a loss of, um, of that, but there's also a direct impact because things are related. And that's just picking one area, that's just picking a reef and there's other parts of the ecosystem impacted. So sorry, that's a long answer. Yeah, no, 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 that's, that's really important to hear. I think uh, what some of this challenges in my, in my thinking is that the Western construct that we're all individuals and discrete individuals, countries, nations, people. And I think probably one of the great learning things, just philosophically, ideologically, is that uh, we're, we're discovering now, is that we are far more interconnected. So when you talk about coral reefs and the impact upon people, there's a direct connection. And so uh, I, I think for us to see ourselves more as a, a, an embedded web mm. of people, of, of cultures, of ecosystems, I think that's far more helpful so thanks, Stephen. Carrie, coming over to you, why is this personal for you? Mm. I think um, throughout my life um, there have been a number of defining kind of moments or roles that I've had that have confronted me with this question around what, what does um, the environment have to do with following Jesus? You know, why is this relevant to, to my faith? And... I think, you know, as a social worker, my, um, my job involves um, working with people to reduce human suffering, yeah. to relieve human suffering. Yeah. As a mother, um, you know, my concern for my children and, and subsequent generations has me feeling a huge sense of responsibility for how I raise them to care for the planet, but also what kind of planet... <laughs> we leave them with, you know, what kind of a life um, are we um, creating for, for future generations? Um, I, probably around this time last year, I took Heidi and Josh into the city for one of the student strikes um, and we took the train in, we made some banners, you know, they painted some great banners, we went into town, came up off the train onto... Um, onto um, Spring Street up near Parliament House and there were apparently 100,000 people there that day protesting. And I, we met my mum and dad and um, it, was, it was just incredibly moving to see so many people, mm. you know, caring about this issue. Mm. And, you know, I, I guess being a part of that, getting caught up in that, and even the emotional emotion of that day, which I can still feel, you know, yeah. in my bones. Yeah. I, I can't um, experience that, um, that degree of... That, that sense of conviction and turn my back on it anymore. You know, it just requires more from me. Um, and, you know, as, as a... As a global citizen and as a sister, I went to visit my brother in Malawi about six years ago. He and his family were working there. 
um, as audiologists. And I've told this story earlier in the year um, uh, at NCR, but, but it's one that really sticks with me. And, um, you know, we were in a supermarket. I'd only arrived that, that, mo that morning, and um, my sister-in-law, Beck, was buying the, the, the weekly shop. I was a bit peckish, so I grabbed a, a pack of chips and uh, paid for it. And while she's going through the register, I, I cracked open my pack and started eating it. And, uh, and she, she just gently leant over to me and said, you might want to wait till we get in the car. And I thought, oh, I've, I've stuffed up here. I've, you know, it's a social norm or something I've broken. Um, and I sort of looked at her puzzled and she said, it's just that people are hungry here. And... Oh, I, you know, how confronting is that? Um, and so, you know, as as I got to understand more of the um, the experience of those Malawian people, though, in the in the coming days, I discovered that they they right now are are experiencing the um, uh, the effects of climate change. There is increased drought, flood. Um, flooding, um, food insecurity, um, you know, the list goes on. And so, again, I, I can't know that and turn my back on it. Um, I have to respond to be true to my, um, myself mm. <laughs> and to, you know, I guess be um, remain sane. I have to respond. I can't have this knowledge without responding in some way. And I love it how there's real people involved... What, when it's just information, it can seem like it's just information in our minds, but when you're actually interacting with real people and you go, there's actually someone that this information is talking about and I've seen it, I've witnessed it, it personalises it. And so I love that, also that thought of, with climate, I think we can think, gee, we're just little drops in an ocean of this. How do we do anything? But then when you meet with 100,000 people and you go, wow, I'm not just alone here. There's there's more to us. There's actually a, a bigger movement. There's there's a sense of urgency and care. Um, I think that's really profound. Um, so the third simple question, though, is uh, how did we get here? <laughs> Could you just sum it up in, in, in one minute? You know, historically, though, how did we get here? Look, uh, I guess um, uh, with, the, with the onset of the industrial age, we have um, benefited from the use of fossil fuels, um, but we've also... Um, uh, created a bit of a beast. You know, our reliance on coal, on gas, on oil, um, for our mobility, you know, we like to be able to get around in our cars and jet set around the world on holidays. Um, our reliance on meat in our diets in the, West, in the Western world. Um, you know, our reliance on these fuels, whilst it's caused us to benefit in many ways, it's also caused enormous damage um, to the planet as the planet warms and can't sustain that level of warming without causing um, devastation. Um, so, um, yeah, I guess it, we've got uh, industrialisation and, and really capitalisation, um, capitalism rather, to, to blame in a way for, for getting here. Mm. Mm. Um, one of the things that I think if you spoke to most people, you know, that, that I'd rub shoulders with, the idea of renewables and it being sort of cleaner, um, I think that there'd be just the, the, the change that's happened in the last 10 years 
um, to talk about different sort of systems. I think it's coming far more to the front about thinking, um, which um, I'm really encouraged by, but there's far more to go. Just mm. Stephen, if I came over to you, so that's an historical shot, how did we get here? Yeah, well, I guess Carrie talked a bit about the science and, yeah. and, and that. From a, like a political level, I feel like we've been let down in a way. It's become a political... In other countries, but in Australia as well, it's sort of become a bit of a political football. And it, so if I think if... I'm not picking on any one side here, but if, if it had been dealt with better, it would have... Um, you know, Australians have been good at putting solar panels on and doing, but and we need to do stuff personally. That's really important. But with some government leadership, better government leadership, I think things would be better as well. But so that's part of how did yeah, we get there? I, I think. Um, but then, at a, thinking at a personal psychological level, um, what like we know this is a really difficult. Uh, we know it's a really serious problem. Why have we not? Why is it hard to act? And there's a Norwegian psychologist who's written a book called what, what We Think About When We're Trying Not to Think About Global Warming, and he calls it the five Ds as his psychological responses. And just very quickly, um, first D, distance. You know, it's, it's a long, long way away. It's happening to others. Um, I'll worry about it. Or even distance in time. I'll worry about it in the future. Um, doom is the second D, and we saw a little bit of that in the video that we watched, that when you see, you know, all these numbers and the things, it's like, you know, you want to stick your fingers in your ears because it just becomes like, overwhelming. Exactly. Yeah. The, the third D is dissonance, and so that's where we, if we know, you know, I drive a car, I eat meat, I do these things, I'm contributing to the problem, and so there's this sort of disconnect between what I know and maybe and my actions, so you can start to sort of... Um, Downplay the facts, maybe, or um, or doubt what what what, um, what the facts are. The fourth D is denial, and so we we sort of um, negate or ignore because um, and we don't have to face face those facts. And and it's really it's a form of self-defence, really, the, the denial one. But the fifth one is identity. A bit of a cheat to get the D in, but um, <laughs> but. And his point here is that we filter news through our identity. So if you have um, conservative, conservative views, say, um, politically, and then you hear someone with liberal values telling you climate change is real, you've got to be doing more, you've got to be... Act, you tend to not want to accept because you see it as the whole other package as well. And I think that... And so, yeah, our cultural identity will override that information and will go with our identity, not the facts. And I wonder, I, and I feel like in church maybe we, we see, has, and not everyone, but the radical left maybe is, is that's an issue that, that they're grabbing hold of, climate, climate change, climate justice. Um, and so if that's not part of who I am, my identity, I don't want to take all of that and, and hold that, so I'm going to reject a lot, I'm, not, I'm going to reject climate change and, mm. and not, so, and I think we need to grapple with that if, if that's one of the reasons why we're, we're reluctant to, to, to act on climate change. Yeah, that's good, Stephen, because one of the things when we started this series, Voices Rise Up, <coughs> we've invited people to adopt a posture of listening. And that's really tricky because some of these are such touch points and they've been made touch points um, for reactionary sort of uh, responses that to position ourselves in a listening position 
uh, and adopt just a, a step back approach and, and trying to, to see through some of the smoke mm. to, to get some clarity here, I think is the right posture we need to bring to this. Yeah, so I think to summarise all that, that the change is difficult and change is hard and they're not necessarily pleasant messages. And um, so and as a church, we have a bit of a role as being prophets in this. And we're going, I believe, to watch a video now um, where um, a, a, he's a climate scientist and a theologian, Mick Pope, is going to sort of touch on that a little bit, I think. It's very good. And thanks to Tia for allowing us to listen to, to Mick Pope. And we're just going to go to that right now. God's vision for a restored planet is a, a human society, a human economy that respects two boundaries. The first boundary is the need for human flourishing, that people have access to, to enough food to eat, enough fresh water to drink, that people aren't living in poverty, they have enough to, to live off, that they have access to education, gender equality, all the things that are important for human flourishing, that are not slaves to an economy, economy that is there to serve them. At the same time, you've got this overarching set of planetary boundaries which allows that flourishing to occur. And so we're now pushing those boundaries, things like climate change, acidification of the oceans, ozone depletion. We're clearing away forests. We're sending species to extinction. We're introducing all sorts of new pollutants into the environment. So economy and human society has not focused on the natural limits that God has put in place, and it's not focused upon the needs of human beings. Climate change is impacting the poor more than in the rich countries because they don't have the resources to adapt and they're also often living very much more on the edge and more sensitive to changes in the climate. Australian Christians are responsible in two ways to the threats of climate change and a changing environment. Firstly, we need to speak prophetically, which means we need to point out that there's a problem, not live in denial and, and, and tell governments that the climate is changing and human beings are responsible and also prophetically expose the idols that have led to that, so the idols of growth, of greed, of GDP, as if that's the only measure of what the good life's about. The gospel is about life and value and flourishing beyond profit. The second thing we need to do is to live proleptically, which is a fancy way of saying we know that Jesus is returning, we know that it's a general resurrection from the dead, and the world will be put to rights. Why don't we start living like that now? exploring in our Christian communities alternative ways of doing economies, alternative ways of thinking about the good life. And that's the future that we're looking towards. That's the future that we should be looking to live out in the present, in this now and not yet period in between. Some really helpful information. I'd encourage us to go to Tears site and just have a, a newsy around there and you'll find um, some really good resources. Carrie, um, how have you sought to redress this? Because it can seem just overwhelming. So what have you done personally? Yeah, well, it is overwhelming, I think. And I think that's um, why for me, um, I started out this process with lots of individual action. What yep. can I do? I'm just one person. Yep. I'm not here to solve the world, world's problems. I'm just here to um, respond as an individual. Um, so, you know, lots of individual actions um, for our family in terms of how we eat, how we travel, um, how, I, how I consume, how I 
purchase things, you know, buying secondhand, um, borrowing, not always buying new stuff, um, thinking about my lifestyle and doing a bit of an audit of that. Um, the second way is to join with others. So using, um, I guess, my social power. So talking about climate change, um, you know, creating groups and, and opportunities to join with others. So um, Steve and I are, are both part of a tier action group and a lot of the work we've done has been about, um, <clears throat> you know, I guess empowering ourselves and um, educating ourselves and responding um, in ways, <clears throat> in a range of different ways. Um, the third uh, area is in political, using my political power. So not just um, voting every three years, but using my democratic right to, um, uh, you know, inform my MP, my local um, uh, member, uh, uh, my, what my concerns are about the, the environment and what we should be doing um, as a country to uh, reduce our emissions, for example, and also... Um, respond to the poorest um, who are being most impacted um, through increasing aid, for instance. And look, the last area that I, I've really enjoyed responding to this issue um, uh, has been around considering my consumer power. So um, thinking about my money and where that is invested. So, you know, we've moved out of um, the big four banks into a bank that... Um, uh, won't invest in fossil fuels. We've I've changed my super to a more ethical super fund. I've you know we've looked at our power company. Um, so looking at how we spend our money and and putting that money where our mouth mouth is. Yeah. And, and I, I like that last little phrase you've just used there. Uh, but the front end too. You also talked about doing your own personal audit. I think that's really important with any of these themes, but particularly this one too. Does everyone have to look just like Carrie Philpot? as they respond to this? No, not at all. It's, it's really about looking at your own life and okay. your own circumstances and how can I reduce my de uh, dependence on fossil fuels? Yeah. How do I reduce my waste? Yeah. How do I reduce my um, impact, my carbon footprint? And everyone's going to look different. Um, yeah. I imagine there'll be some things that are very similar, but some things that are... But I think that personal audit thing is an excellent mm. starting point too. Stephen? Um... Yes, similar. I, there's personal actions that I've taken and I still have a way to go in that, so it's a, it's a journey for sure. Um, I just want to use this to give a little plug for something called Christians Together for Climate. Yep. It's, a, um, it's a campaign being run by TIA and Common Grace and it's trying to mobilise Christians in the lead-up to the next election, which is 2022. It's still a fair way off, but they want a long lead time and it's trying to mobilise the Christian voice into, into the political arena around this issue because there's a sort of feeling that the Christian vote in this space has been taken for granted, maybe. And so it's targeting around 30 key electorates. And, it's, and you know, while it may, we know it may not be a huge voting block, they actually are strategically a very important voting block. And yeah. so I'm coordinating the campaign for Deacon, Michael Sukar's um, electorate, and we're trying to mobilise as many churches as we can to come on board and, and say to Michael, Christians care about climate change. Um, can, you have a, can we have a bold and credible plan for, on climate action? That's in a nutshell what it's doing. So I'd be excited to have our church be a part of that campaign. And I think to have, you know, yes, we feel when we're... When we're Working on our own, it feels lonely, and but when when we mobilise and together, 
we can you know can make a big difference and so yeah, I'm excited for that campaign and like good to and talk more about it. Yeah, good. And mm. let's, so let's have that space. I know you've mm. raised it with me, and I think mm. good on you. Well done. Um, I remember uh, Professor McGorry two years ago talking about the mental health space, and he, he said, unless there's enough political will, that is people knocking on the doors of politicians and a voice rising up, hence the theme, um, nothing will change. So just from a mental health issue, that was his area of passion, mm. he, he really challenged the audience and said, unless you do something with your democratic right, unless you... And I think Christians have been out of this space because somehow it's got muddled in there with we shouldn't be involved in those things, but actually I'd say we could leverage these things mm. to a great... But that's how our system kind of works. Yeah. So well done, well done. Um, last question for each of you. What have you learnt along the way? What have you learned about God, yourself or others as you've taken on this journey? Mm. Um, yeah, I grew up in a sort of conservative church, Brethren Church, and the whole idea of sort of a kingdom theology framework wasn't a part of that. And I was, as I was thinking about this question, I thought of a song that I thought of quite a lot. Turn, I won't sing it. <laughs> Are you sure? I'm very sure. Give it a crack right <laughs> no, now. No. no. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. People, a lot of people would have heard that if yep. they're of my vintage. Yep. And I mean, I like the, I like the, I like the hymn. Um, but I wonder if there's a bit of dodgy theology in there um, that you know is our ultimate spiritual experience and goal. Our encounter with Jesus is such that the things of earth actually fade away, and, and it's just this spiritual encounter with Him. But I actually wonder if the opposite's actually true. That as we as we're looking to Jesus and understanding more of God's heart, that the things of earth actually become more of a burden because they're a burden for God. And I feel that climate change is, is part of that. So, yeah, so for me it's, it's... And I suppose this is all of the justice stuff we've been looking at, not just climate change, that, that our, our, I guess, an authentic part of walking with Jesus is living out this justice stuff. And, yeah, so that's what I've learned. It's good. Learning. It's good. Mm. People matter to God and matter matters. How do I know? I won't get on a, on a bandwagon here. Resurrection, Romans chapter 8 and Revelation 21. If you want to get into God is into renewables, he's going to renew the whole thing. So check out those two passages. Carrie, what have you learned about yourself, God or others along the way? Um, I, I think I've, um, I've learned that God speaks to me through my... Um, my emotions, actually, and I, I do get emotional about this topic, and and I guess as I've listened to that, that sort of um, still small voice in me, God's voice in me, has guided me along the way, and so I guess I've learned that though the emotions that we um, have, the way that we respond when we're moved by something, when we're angered. Um, you know, to listen to that, um, to listen to the tears that come when, um, you know, when you are moved um, by something because I think God is working in those tears um, or those, those feelings to, to prompt a response, to call us um, to act. So, yeah, listening in. Good, listening yeah. to the voice of God through our emotions as well. It's very good. Um, I want to thank you for both being with us here today.
Um, I know that we've been encouraging people to have a symbolic and a substantive response. The symbolic one, one of them, I think Nick's going to post in a moment. Uh, listen to Catherine Hayhoe. She's a climate scientist and she's also a Christian and she's got a great TED talk. Um, but what's the substantive thing that we're going to encourage in the next period of time? Yeah, so at the start of this year, which seems like ages ago, yeah. when February, Carrie, I think it was, we had a meeting of you know, invited people if you, this is an issue that resonates with you and you'd like to see us as a church do more in, in this space, let's get together. We had a meeting in Feb, then coronavirus came and we sort of haven't done anything since then, but we'd like to, to get that back together again. And, yeah, so in before Christmas, actually, we'd like to maybe just have a Zoom meeting or even maybe if we're allowed a face-to-face and and start that again and start the conversations in the group and in the wider church, so... And see where that takes us for for twenty for the next year. Be yeah. great. It'd be great if we could have a working group coming out that's, of this. That's what we'd love. Yeah. And more details this week's uh, update. I think you're going to have for us as well. Mm-hmm. So that's brilliant. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. I know yeah. a lot of preparation in this morning. So thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Carrie. Keep it on. Keep it going. And what we're going to do right now is pause for a moment. There's this beautiful thread in the Bible of justice but in particular an idea called gleanings. And Steve's going to briefly just attend to that right now, the heart of God, through this wonderful concept called the gleanings. Have a listen. As we continue with this theme of of justice, I want to speak to you this morning about a a beautiful provision in the Old Testament, and it's a provision called gleaning. It said this, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field, or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. And then later in that same chapter it says, The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. I want to speak to you today about a number of things that I think come out of this idea of gleaning. The first thing I want to highlight is it speaks to us about the heart of God. God is a God of loving kindness, a God who seeks the peace and welfare of all, and especially those who are poor, the foreigner, the fatherless, the widow. And so the commandment to landowners to leave a margin in their fields reflects God's desire for people to create opportunities for the poor and marginalised among them so that they can be productive and contribute to their own well-being. So gleaning almost created a safety net for those in need. God calls his people to reflect his own character and the character of God we know is, is a God who is a holy God who cares for the poor and so they were to love their neighbour as they love themselves. The book of Deuteronomy expands on this and it it says things like when you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, don't go over the vines again. Leave them for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow. And then it says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. I want to speak to you a little bit about what I think comes out of this passage for me and it's this need for margin. You see, God is the ultimate source of all our assets and resources. I've drawn a little diagram here of a field. You might like to uh, imagine that this is the the extent of the field, the outside line, and the farmer is able to harvest the centre part, but he's left a margin around the outside for the poor and the marginalised. And you know, in our lives, we need to leave a margin to be able to respond to the needs around us. 
if every day of our life is so full that it's maxed out, all the minutes, all the finances, all the energy that we have, without any margin, we become stressed, we become tired, and we become unable to, to be who we ought to be to those who are poor amongst us. I need margin in my life if I'm going to help people who are living on the margins of society. And sometimes it'll mean letting go of what I think is good so that I can do what is actually God's uh, better thing. There's a fantastic story in the Bible that illustrates um, the way um, margin was used in the Old Testament. It's the story of Ruth. If you're not familiar with the story of Ruth, I'd encourage you to read it. It's just a beautiful story. And throughout the Bible, we see God blessing people and promising to bless people. Uh, But God's blessing isn't only for the wealthy. And in the book of of Ruth, this beautiful story, there's a, a guy who's a wealthy landowner. His name is Boaz. And Ruth, who just by coincidence happens to be uh, related to him but doesn't know it distantly, um, she happens to be gleaning in his fields. Ruth is a widowed foreigner and she's very needy. And when Boaz hears of her situation and the fact that she's gleaning in his fields and the fact that she's been so dedicated to her mother-in-law, Naomi, he instructs his field workers to actually drop extra grain on the ground for Ruth to collect. And uh, so Boaz is this abundant, generous landowner. And at one stage he says to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me, don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me, watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you and whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. And at this Uh, Ruth responds, she bows down with her face to the ground and she asks him, why have I I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And so we have this beautiful picture of abundant generosity coming from Boaz. What a contrast to the story Jesus tells about the rich farmer. It's a parable, but it tells about a man who had a huge harvest, a great harvest, because he had good land and good soil. He's rich because of of that. Well, this rich rich man in the story, he begins with the right question. He said, what shall I do with this great harvest? But it goes pear-shaped after that. He'd forgotten this rule about leaving the harvest at the edge of the field and sharing the plenty. All he did was build bigger barns and store his crops. And he's so pleased with himself that he thought he'd take it easy. But that very night, he died and he never did get to enjoy the plenty. And he didn't get the joy of sharing the abundance that he had, which I imagine was an incredible joy for Boaz, the landowner. What was the difference? Boaz had built a margin. Boaz had chosen to give the edges of his field the excess to those who needed it most. The other thing that I think is really significant is this next point I want to make, and it's about the dignity of work. We often talk about charity and, and we, we love to, to give things to people uh, and that's, that's great and people in need need our charity but it's so much better when we can give someone uh, productive work so that they feel a part of society and they feel they're contributing. And what a transformation it must have made in Ruth's life when she was allowed to glean in Boaz's field. Someone has put it like this, as a foreign widow, Ruth is invited by a new, unique community of people to work among the gleaners, engage with the harvesters, eat with the owner and ultimately transform her new community. As she gleans, she gains access to resources, she's cared for by the working community, she gains relational connection and she receives dignity. 
So even as a foreigner, Ruth receives a new identity as a matriarch in the genealogy of Jesse, David and Jesus. And her story demonstrates the practice of restorative justice that invites social transformation. Amazing story, the story of Ruth and the difference that it made for Ruth to be able to glean in the field of Boaz. Today, the idea of gleaning is one that you could read a little bit about. There's a lot of attempts in our world today to uh, bring back some of this gleaning. But it's a challenge, I think, for those of us who own productive assets to give opportunities for marginalised people to work for a living. I wonder if business owners can actually be the point people, if you like, in providing opportunities for work. As followers of Jesus in our day and in our culture, I wonder if we give enough credit and encouragement to business owners and business leaders in our community for their incredible role in creating meaningful work. How do we respond to this idea of gleaning? I love the fact that in the passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy it says, remember you were foreigners in Egypt. Remember you were slaves in Egypt. We respond because God has reached out to us in Jesus and we respond in love because we know that we serve a God who cares for those who need our love and our compassion. In 2 Corinthians 5 it says, For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died and was raised again.